When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Foundation and Podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Foundation on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. Don't normally do that, but I, f- I figured it'd, it'd be good here. Uh, we've got a We're very special... all pretext, all shtick, all, all format in the last, last episode. Yeah, no, this is off, off the books, off the record, uh, under the table. I think that's what you call it. <laughs> uh, we've got a pretty special episode this week for you. Um, we came back specifically to talk to Mr. David S. Goyer one last time. Actually, for being honest, you came back to talk to him because I, I was unable to make this this appointment. Yeah, he. So da- David is in another country. He mm-hmm. is on another time zone uh, from the time that we talked to him last, which was already kind of a stretch for us to make. So I, uh-huh. uh, we had to get up extremely early on one morning to to have a conversation with him. Uh, which I'm up early anyway because I got to get my kid to, to school. So I I went ahead and soloed it. Jim, contri- we brainstorm a question document, and Jim submitted mm-hmm. the the questions there. But you know. I, I feel bad because between um, I know, uh, the nature of time and space and the lawnmower, man, you've really gotten screwed out of your uh, Goyer time. Yeah. Now we'll, we'll catch him in season two. I'm sure. Yeah. So, and I actually think this, uh, this interview, and I know you haven't heard it yet because we're recording this like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, before you've had a chance to edit and all that stuff. But like, I think it went really well. I thought we got some really good information out of him about the nature, some clarifications, of the laws of robotics, uh, some nice. tantalizing, Hints and deep and, and uh, ideas that are coming up in season two. Uh, some ideas for like flashbacks that might be multiple thousand years. Wow! Uh, so a lot of I think, I think we, we 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 got some good some good new info that I haven't heard any, anywhere else, and some good insights on, on filmmaking that we always do. All right. Well, so, you hooked me, so hopefully the audience is hooked enough to listen to this. <laughs> Yeah. And, and again, thanks to David for being very generous with this time and answering, you know, not, not just the, the two main interviews, but he also uh, answered quite a few of our questions via email. And uh, also special thanks to his assistant, once again, Tyler, uh, for helping to facilitate this and, and making the interview an easy process. So I guess without further ado, uh, let's get to the, the questions. Uh, I guess I'll start off with some like just kind of basic um you know, filmmaking type questions or, or the, the meta questions. What is something or what, what's a thing that you're the most proud of accomplishing this season? Like what, what, what thing about the show do you think just really fired on all cylinders and, and, and worked? I think, I think frankly, just introducing the, the concepts in the worlds and the characters to the non book reading audience. It's, it's a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of exposition. And, um, you know, even though the genetic dynasty is something that we invented, that's a kind of heady idea as well. And the fact that that has now permeated throughout the general culture, not the kinds of people that listen to this podcast and not the book readers. I mean, that was a massive, massive, massive lift. And 
and it was successful. Um, and so moving forward, that's all been established. We don't, we don't have to do that anymore. And just the fact that people are tweeting about the genetic dynasty and tweeting about psychohistory and, and not just science nerds. I mean, I think that cannot be underscored enough. I consider that and Apple considers that just a huge triumph. And the fact that these themes and these concepts that Isaac Asimov originated are, are, are now public memes. I don't think that can be understated enough, regardless of, of, of whether or not some of the book purists take issues with this or that. That, that was no small feat, you know, introducing psychohistory into right. the public conversation. Right. Yeah, I mean, six, six months ago, you know, you, you say psychohistory to somebody and they're thinking you're talking about some kind of Hitchcock documentary or something. But now it's like it's, it's not just the people who's reading, reading Asimov in high school. Um, yeah. the, the flip side of that is like, you know, it, uh, the entirety of the season's been out for uh, half a week. It's only been four or five days. But, you've, you know, I know you've been looking at people's reactions and, and, and looking at stuff. When you see how people have reacted to the entirety of season one. Um, is there anything that you look back and be like, ah, I wish I had done because the audience saw it this way and I didn't. Is there anything that you uh, wish you'd done different in season one? Of course there is. I mean, I'd be lying if, if I said there wasn't. There are there are things that I wanted to do differently that for a variety of reasons were outside of my control. And I'm not just talking about COVID issues. There are always compromises when you're starting up something like this that you have to make with the studio that you have to make with Apple. There are a lot of different stakeholders involved and multiple, multiple million, hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. Um, I think in terms of things that were in my control, it was, it was interesting. I, we had no idea to what extent people were going to pick up on the subtleties. Uh, I think you talk about like the third step Martin reveal, that, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I was aware, I presumed that a certain percentage of the audience would catch on to the fact that, that Salver was Gail's daughter. I mean, I was not assuming that would be a huge surprise to particularly the kind of people that listen to your podcast or that people are, are, were on Reddit. I, I, was, I was guessing that maybe a third of the audience would see that coming. And I was okay with that. Um, but I think one of the delightful aspects for me is, is that people picked up on nuances and hints I just couldn't predict. It was hard to sort of decide, well, how, how well are they going to be picking up on these hints or not? And certainly I had lots of healthy debates with the studio and Apple about how subtle or not we could be. And I think the lesson we all learned is we can be even more subtle. I, I don't know what percentage of the mainstream audience saw that coming. I mean, some people were legitimately surprised by the sure. reveal. Um, I would venture to say maybe at least 50% of the mainstream audience saw it coming, which was maybe more than I was hoping for, you know? So I, I, if I had to do it back again, would I pull, would I pull back on some of those things? Probably. And certainly that's something that I'm thinking about um, for season two. I don't think, um, 
I think very few people saw the turn coming uh, with Azura kind of being a, you know, a honeypot or a honey trap for Dawn. I think very few people saw that coming, oh, yeah. which I'm, I'm excited evil, by. Evil rebel clone Dawn coming was, uh, yeah, was, was uh, a virtually no one. Yeah, virtually no one saw that coming. I think people were really shocked by um, Demerzel killing Dawn. So I was really happy with that. So there are, there are, you know, the flip side of it is there are, there are many. I think people were very surprised by and large that Gale and Salver met up at the end of the season. Um, so it's always hard to know going into this how to weight the mainstream audience versus like the hardcore geek book audience and right. and i think or or even what the audience is that's watching the show like now we have a much better sense of the demographics of the people that are watching the show which we had no idea going into it now we do now we do so i would say that moving forward we can be a bit more targeted if that makes sense what's a very long-winded answer oh no i, I we uh, you got high marks for the long witness on the last uh, set of interviews so um what do you share any of those demographic insights like is the audience younger older uh more educated than you what what, what were the, or do you not care to share that um i don't i, I would share it. i don't know if apple wants me to okay. share it so. uh, <laughs> that is a secret i'm just not sure okay. um i don't want any coup on the showrunners here so um yeah. Something, this might be related to the last question, but I know, you know, we've talked and you've talked a lot, a lot of interviews about, you know, what a difficult birth this was. You've been working on this for four, four over just over four years. About, uh, yeah. The COVID restrictions throwing a real monkey wrench in everybody's life. Um, and I know you like, you know, it's something I surprised the last interview you mentioned that you're still kind of working under some of those restrictions because obviously the pandemic hasn't just fucked off like we'd like it to. Um do you what's what's something that you learned about this new style of collaboration or this new style of kind of um you know uh restrictions on filmmaking uh that you think might make season two smoother um uh more collaborative or or, or whatever well when we when we wrapped season one and we knew that there was a possibility of going into season two, the first thing I did across the board. Um, with my crew, with my writers, is just sort of do an audit of what we thought worked and what, what didn't work. And, and that could be filming techniques, that could be storytelling techniques, that could be um, when you're working with actors, uh, especially actors that you have not worked with before, you learn their strengths and their weaknesses. And, and, and so in that regard for the actors, it's easier to write to their strengths and weaknesses because they know kind of who they are and, and what they can pull off. That part is great. Um, I think that we went through every single department and said, we were happy with this. We weren't happy with that. Um, you know, I, there are incredibly ridiculous, boring things, but I'll give you two examples. Um, uh, Cassie building that plays Dawn uh, has a wig so that his hairline matches um, uh, dusk and days. Uh, and the wig wasn't great in season one. And believe it or not, we did over $400,000 of CG wig fixes. No way. Uh, yes. 
which kills me because $400,000 is about, you know, uh, at least 20 to 30, like amazing VFX shots, you know, like space porn shots. And you don't want to be spending your money doing things like that. We also spent about $200,000 on, on, on fixes on the imperial floors because there's all this sort of gold gilt inlay and it would get it would get roughed up and so now the entire cast and crew moving forward they have to wear those like surgical booties so that they don't scuff you know we spent two hundred thousand dollars just fixing the floor and that's the kind of stuff that just as a showrunner drives me insane because i think oh my god we could have had more shots of the Raven or more crowd replication shots or things like that. So we went through every single department and said, what can we do better at? So season two, just from a production standpoint is much more efficient. I think we'll get even more on the screen. I, I know people feel like the show generally looks great, but I feel every shot that's insufficient, I feel in my soul. And I think we could do better on. You mentioned that um, you really like I, I listened to the official podcast the whole season and you were talking uh, with Jason and the rest of your crew about the mother's womb location. Um, and you had to like really dig in your heels to get that because it was on a whole other island, I think. But it was such yeah. a great and, and it, it it is like I thought that that was a lot of rendering. And I looked up some locations just like, you know, no, that's all in camera articles online like. Yeah, it's that pretty. Like it's 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 crazy. Um, but you mentioned it's like you had to really dig in your heels to, to to fight for that to fight for that shot. You know, fight for that location. With with all the limitations we talked about with with time and budget, how do you know when to kind of like fight for things and when to like, or do you just fight for everything and let the studio say no? Because it seems like you can't fight for everything, right? If you fight, you can't. I mean, I mean that that's one of the probably two or three primary um, jobs that a showrunner does, right? I mean, uh, I mean, I think the showrunner has three primary jobs. One is just keeping track of the story, whether that be, you know, from episode to episode, the themes, you know, where are we at in the story, um, keeping the actors like on point, you know, no, no, you, the, you know, the performance needs to go this way. The, the number two job is, hiring the directors, hiring the department heads, you know, making those key hires and then hopefully not bigfooting them, you know, um, you know, letting them do what they do. And then the third biggest thing is, yeah, deciding what you spend the money on, deciding what you can cut and what you need to fight for. And all of the time, I mean, I can't tell you, I, I was just in a meeting where, you know, production asked if we could cut this one little interstitial scene. And on paper, it seems like, well, it's just a little interstitial scene. What do you, what do you need that for? But all the time I'm asked, you know, is this important or is this not important? But sometimes those interstitial scenes are what allow you to build the music. They're what allow you to build the mise-en-scene to, to use, you know, a highfalutin term. And, and it, it, they're low-hanging fruit from the studio's point of view or from production's point of view because it's not you know, a big flashy scene, but that's part of the filmmaking, right? That's part of what hopefully makes it feel cinematic and not just like you're doing one big wide visual effect shot and then you're just in a corner of a set and doing some talking heads. And so I have to weigh all of those things every day, every moment. I, right now, just today, there's a, there's a character that we have booked 
for four episodes and they're X amount of money per episode and they really should be in another episode. Just it's, it's better storytelling, even though they don't speak. And I have to decide whether or not to spend that money to put them in or not, whether or not it's the responsible thing to do. So that's, that's my job 24 seven. You, you mentioned uh, when you were pitching this to Apple that you did set, you know an hour or two, a kind of a, a breakdown, walking them through the the plot and how it's going to un, unveil over the next uh, eight seasons or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so that implies that like you've got a pretty architected plot. And yeah, I know there's like different approaches. Some showrunners kind of make things up as they go. Some people like you know Babylon Five famously was all plotted out to five seasons, and even then they had to accommodate like a death of an actor and whatnot. But as like like Vince Gilligan mentioned, um, his approach was he always had like a you know a north star. Like I I want to take Mr. Chips, turn him into Scarface. But his challenge in the writers' room is they like to like write themselves into a corner that they couldn't figure out, and then that was a challenge to come back is how to break that open. Or was some of the big swings at the end of the season? Is that kind of more your approach, or do you actually have like a plan? And I'm like, I, you know, I, I'm starting off at season two here. I'm on end in season two here. I'm starting off season three. Or is it a little fuzzier as you get? Or what? What is your approach to telling this, you know, eight season epic? Um, I, I, I do have, um, I would say broad strokes. I know where each season ends, okay? Um, but I do allow myself the opportunity to shimmy if something, you know, emerges and is more interesting. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to get into the particulars, but um, I, I think I've mentioned on other interviews, I might have even mentioned it to you, that one of the things that interests me about the show is that Asimov, so many things happen off screen with Asimov. You know, we don't realize, you know, whether it's Sauer's backstory or the mule just appears, for instance, um, out of whole cloth. I'm interested in the mule's backstory. I'm interested in the origin of the mule. And so um, we had certain suppositions about the mule, but uh, an idea emerged the other day that was really, really, really interesting. That was not something we'd considered before. And, and we're going to shimmy. Yeah. Uh, so I, it's, I don't like just writing myself into a corner without having any idea of where we could go. So with regards to season two, obviously, uh, well, the scripts are written for season two. We know where season two ends. Um, but even as we're embarking on that, we're we're loosely breaking season three and as ideas are emerging are emerging for season three we're also incorporating them into season two so i guess i'm a little in between um and i am planting seeds i mean i have planted seeds for certain things some that your listeners have picked up on some that they haven't for in success moments that are going to drop in season four season five season six whatnot you that's a phrase I, I saw you use in the last when you say in success what what is that what is what does that mean well i i pitched eight seasons but of course i don't have a crystal ball i'm not a psycho historian oh so I you're saying it, it continue I, assuming you continue to be renewed okay because yeah, yeah, 
one of the listeners questions like in six are they going to rename foundation to success like you know like there's there each each season's going to no, be no, like, no, no, foundation no. success empire no like, no no i'm sorry okay. no no i just i just mean we know season two has been ordered and these shows are so big and complicated that anytime you know one season is ordered there are at least you know broad reaching plans for the season beyond it there have to be because it takes too long to make these seasons. So we're very much having conversations about season three, even as we're embarking on season two, whether that means actors that we're bringing back or certain storylines or, or sets that we might keep or what might be required for season three. I know it's funny given that we just finished season one, but effectively it takes about two years to make a season. Yeah, no, I'm impressed that you guys are, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, largely done with the script writing process of season two. Like, I, I've always wondered that, like how much like, you know, tag, uh, uh, tagging up off the base you, you do in between renewals and, you know, trying to get get a, get a leg up. Do, do you, Between you and Apple, do you have an ETA for season two that you're hoping for? We do, but I'm not going to tell you it uh, uh, because the other thing is quite understandably in the age of COVID. We don't we don't want a date hanging out there. I mean, we could be interrupted, right? We could the show could go down for a month or two or who who knows, right? Um, so I, I don't think we're going to be talking about any kind of date until the season is at least 90 percent in the can. Probably smart. Uh, you mentioned on another podcast, uh, I think it was Sean Carroll's. Um mindscape podcast uh that you had a pressure from uh you know different forces that to, to make you trim down certain scenes like you you specifically said uh the the math exposition scene where like uh, uh gail is doing the optical navigation and you know they're like cut, mm-hmm. cut, cut, and they're like oh, i want to make it vote um I, I don't know this isn't even really a question but, but an observation i thought that was an interesting because, you know, we're, we're also we also cover Better Call Saul, and that's a show that will spend 15 minutes watching a character. Mike just fuck around in his garage with a garden hose and some nails and some hot glue. And it's like, what is he doing? What is he doing? And there's no you, dialogue. It's just but I'll tell like, you the difference. Yeah. The difference is Better Call Saul is drafting off. How many seasons of Breaking Bad were there? Five, six, there's right? Five, yeah. Six really seasons. Yeah. Right. So um, I'm certain that when Vince Gilligan was doing season one or possibly even season two, um, the powers that be didn't, I'm certain he lost some creative battles. Uh, and, and now that season one is, has been a success for Apple there. I mean, they gave me a lot of leeway, but they're willing to give me more leeway. And, and so I, 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 I don't, it's been a long time since I've seen the first season of Breaking Bad, but I don't think we had those kind of extended moments necessarily in the first season of Breaking Bad. Success allows more creative. They let me get away with a lot in season two, maybe a bit more. And if we keep going, maybe a bit more. We'll see. I don't I don't I don't have completely carte blanche to do whatever I want. I don't have an unlimited budget and I don't but but they certainly back my vision the vast majority of the time, I will say that. 
But there, yeah, there are things I wanted to do in season one. There are battles that I lost for one reason or another. Uh, do you have? Do you, do you want to? Do you want to share one? Do you got one right off the top of your head that was like uh, nah, nah. we could mourn for what could have been? Or speak not right now. But 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 some of it you might see in season two. Ah, that's so uh, you, you get yeah. the second chance. Uh, speaking yeah. of limitations, um, something else that came out of that interview, you're talking about the science advisor, and sometimes you go to you know. Um, this is always like I, I read the Kip Thorne's Interstellar thing and like, you know, Christopher Nolan came in and was like, hey, I just want this to be 100 percent straight science. And then like the first time it's like, well, the black hole, if it's that big and is this kind of going to look like and, and Christopher was like, no, 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 no. We're going to do yeah. we're going to do the other. We're going to we're going to do 90 percent of the science. Yeah, you had, a, you had an amusing anecdote about how oh. you wanted for various storytelling and probably symbolism purposes. You wanted the, in season two to have a moon sharing an atmosphere with its parent planet. And you know, obviously science advisors like, my God, the atmosphere dragged the tidal forces is going to be. And then you're like, well, but if, if, if we had to do it that way and, and with you, you've talked about the empire as you envision it being like a type two on that yeah, one civilization, civilization, which I think is that's a civilization able to harness the, the power of essentially an entire galaxy. Um, I, I I thought it was a solar system. I could be wrong. Don't maybe it may, okay. I've, but 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 it's it's I, it's immensely several orders yeah. of magnitude more powerful than we are because we're at like a type zero. You know, we're not even like on the scale yet. Um, with that power, like you know, you, you can have the empire do just crazy crazy things almost without limit. You know, the sufficiently advanced technology, uh, indistinguishable from magic, but also when we cover shows that explicitly deal with magic, you know, like uh, uh, Game of Thrones, for example, we've always talked about, like, it's important to have limitations on that because otherwise, of course, of course. And, and, and there's different ways you can do that. You know, you can limit it with like uh, Brian Sanderson's type, type, like rules, or you can limit it like the way Tolkien did with Gandalf, where it's like Gandalf has wild powers that are ill-defined, but he also can't use them against you know he can't he can't like you know magic humans and stuff he can only use that in direct opposition to the other magical beings have you thought about like what are the limitations of the empire's power um either politically or technologically or are you you know is is that going to be something that's like gets defined as the season goes on um i mean yes to both answers i mean limitations are important for storytelling um, and then trying to subvert those limitations or watching your character struggle within the constraints of those limitations makes for good drama. So what we did in season one is we said, okay, um, Empire, uh, only Empire can fold space. They fold space with ships that can generate their own singularities. And, and they got some gates. That was one of the things we had to cut. Uh, but we certainly we'll talk about it in the future and we'll see them in the future. And then, um, and, and if humans are awake during space folding, they can experience psychosis and the more that they're awake, it can be, you know, they can have long-term brain damage and long-term psychosis. Those are some of the limitations that we set in place. I think there are limitations to the auras uh, that we're going to play around with. I think there are limitations to the nanites that we're going to play around with. Um, I, I mean, there are limitations to everything, some which are more explicit, uh, like space folding, some which aren't explicit yet, but which we'll get into. But I, I, I find all of those interesting. Do I think, I mean, I think Empire is capable of 
of manipulating gravity uh, and introducing artificial gravity and things like that. And, and I think things like that could allow them to make a world that does have a moon that shares its own atmosphere potentially habitable. But in that instance, we said, well, I think we would have to introduce a lot of, um, you know, a ring of satellites that were, you know, you know, gravity generators or, or something like that. At least it introduced, just explain it in some way um, how they were attempting to do this. You mentioned uh, that the jump gate stuff that got cut, um, you know, that there's apparently like some kind of cowboy bebop style, like, you know, jump stations where you can, you know, kind of like an interstellar highway. Um, yeah. are, is there any hope for any of that stuff to, well, I guess you just got future seasons, but like, uh, are, are, is any of that cutting room floor going to make it onto like the Blu-rays or I guess is, is Apple even going to do Blu-rays with these digital, all digital? Like why, what, what is the argument for, I guess, Blu-rays maybe it's, I haven't, I haven't heard any talk yet of Blu-rays. Um, are there, are there scenes that have been now? Are there, there are no big visual effects scenes that have been right because that's why they get uh, you know <laughs> uh, yeah exactly are, but are are there there are entire scenes that have been cut from episodes that that haven't made it out and will we at some point see those scenes I think it would be cool to do it but we haven't had a specific conversation about where those would emerge or how we would how we would show those but yeah I, I would say there's probably there's probably at least. 25 minutes of scenes across season one that have been cut of, of entire scenes for one reason or another. I, I do hope that like, you know, as we go away from physical media, I do uh, hope that if we're going to abandon like Blu-ray releases, we find some way in the streaming services to deliver things like commentaries, deleted scenes, storyboards, <laughs> because man, as a fan, that's, that's some of the coolest stuff. Um, we're, we're talking about it now because we have so many storyboards and, interesting uh, i mean some of it's been released by us some of it's been released by other people but we're talking about moving forward a more formalized way to release all of that but i think the commentary aspect of it has been replaced by podcasts poorly yours that's and, the, you know yours and ours same, you know? yeah. yeah 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 that's true like the fact I, I do like the rise of the official podcast that's um um, but I, I, I like that the, like more and more shows are having like, you know, the, the, the showrunner, the writers on each week. That's such a great, uh, resource. You know, it used to be like, you'd get like maybe Alan Sepinwall would sit down with a showrunner at the end of a season, uh, you know, one time, but now getting this week by week stuff, it's, it's, it's great material. Yeah. Um, I want to shift into like actual, the, the metafiction of your guys's universe now and ask some like, you know, specific show, show questions. Um, sure. Do you have a clear idea of the robot wars timeline? Because something like, I just assumed that was like in the distant past, but uh, yeah, Brother Dust uh, is mentioning something about painting a mural depicting it. And I'm like, is that Imperial history? Cause like clean, the Cleonic dynasty is like the tail end of a long line of Imperial rule. Right. Yeah. The Cleonic, when we pick up the show, I think the Cleonic dynasty has been around for about 400 years, but, but the empire has been around for at least 10,000 years. Um, it's just that the, the clone dynasty is something that supplanted it about 400 years ago. Um, the robot wars definitely happened thousands of years ago. It did not happen during the genetic dynasty. Just because it's depicted in the mural doesn't mean 
everything depicted in the mural has happened during the Cleonic dynasty to make that clear. Um, the robot wars happened in our show approximately 5,000 years prior to the events of the pilot. It's definitely the intention to depict that. Um, and really, I don't, I don't want to reveal too much, but yeah, without in success, yes, we will be getting into that heavily. We will depict, be depicting the robot wars. Yes. This has been something that's been a considerable amount of debate on our podcast. Um, and I know you've made some comments about the laws of robotics and that you do have the rights to at least the, the core concepts of that or to express it. Um, but how important are the laws of robotics to your story? Because they haven't been directly addressed in the fiction. Um, is it something that you just kind of keep in the back of your mind? Is it something that you feel like uh, these robots uh, could possibly maybe ignore? Uh, what, what's, what's your feeling on the, the, the relation to the, the Asimovian laws of robotics and foundation? They're important and they will be addressed. Um, I, but it's been interesting to see people surmise about whether or not this means we're betraying this law or that. I would say sometimes I can't reveal too much, but I'm I'm kind of surprised at the lack of imagination on some people <laughs> when Dude. they think about that. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm like, have there, you there, read there, a lot there, of Asimov? Yeah, there are quite a few other possibilities out there than I think. Many some people in Reddit and whatnot have, have surmised, and I'm I'm frankly surprised. Uh, the laws exist in our show mythology. Uh, we will be talking about them explicitly, you know, moving forward. Just because we didn't talk about them in season one doesn't mean they don't exist. It doesn't mean we're not going to get into it. Um, I had a I had a theory and this is just going back because like because yeah, I mean, I we were talking about the Demerzel ripping her face off and I'm like, this looks like an Asimovia robot in just like a crisis of rule potentials like, oh, my God, I've got to be like, yes. I'm, I'm supposed to do this. I'm, yes. not supposed, I'm supposed to protect all life. I'm supposed to protect human life as a whole. And I'm supposed to be loyal to it and just, you know. So, like, I, I, to me, that's like a classic, you know, robot in like almost psychosis over the conflict of, of, of all the different rules. Um, but I, I, I saw something when I was reviewing in, I think it was season three, um, where we kind of went back 400 years, oh. saw Cleon the first talking to Dimmerzel. And there's a sneaky little line where they mm. got the space bridge in the background. And he says, you're spending so much time with the systems programmers lately. And she's like, well, you've set them about a big task. Were they talking about the star bridge or were they maybe talking about changes to that? They're, they're jamming into the, the, the dimmer there, or do you just want to smile about that? <laughs> they weren't talking about the star bridge. Aha. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, here's just, here's an easy, uh, I guess. Yes or no. Can nanobots heal a slit throat? Do, do you like we talk about the the limitations because there was like there was like a there was a there was a cottage industry of rebel clone day uh, infiltration theories that that died a violent death. <laughs> some, a well, by of the way, some of some of some of those theories were really interesting. I mean, sometimes I'll hear them like, "Ooh, that's pretty cool." Uh, you know, yeah. it's not what we're doing, but that's interesting. Um, I think that uh, um. Under certain circumstances, nanobots could heal a slit throat. I don't think they can heal, uh, you know, losing a, a hemisphere of a brain. 
I, I don't think they could heal decapitation or obviously an entire organ like a heart or lungs being removed. But I do think a slit throat, um, if it weren't too insane, they could probably heal. My thought, like when people are discussing, like, I think the shadow master probably knows what a nanobite can and can't do. And if he's slitting the guy, for yeah, sure. Yeah, for so sure. He knows exactly how far you got to to get the get the job done. Also, also that just because he did that, that doesn't mean that they then took that body and incinerated it a moment later. Right. Yeah. There's there's more cottage, more cottage industry uh, uh, theory crafting going on about that. Um, I was wondering, like, what? The vault, you know, um, the vault is very similar to what is depicted in the books of foundation, but it's also a lot different as you've talked about in, in the official podcast. Um, but, but what I, when I saw the vault, because like I was in like a like an Asimovian panic, I was like Dimmerzel when I was like when this vault like opened up and dug into the ground and shot a beam of light out. I'm like, oh, what is happening? And then Harry steps out of it. Was there some are we are we to understand that there's maybe something more going on, too? Is there something else? And, and that Harry or is it just that was a production to just generate his consciousness for the first time? Or is there anything else going on? I think I, I think I said at one point, I can't remember if it was the official podcast or it was the interview I did with you or Sean Carroll. Or I don't know what that the vault does contain other secrets. And yes, the vault does contain other secrets. But the thing that I would ask viewers to think about is, you know, Harry Seldon, in, he appears, obviously, in the first short story. I'm talking about the original uh, trilogy. And then he appears as a hologram, a non-interactive hologram in the second story. I don't think he appears after that. And so if you think about, well, but in our adaptation, Harry Seldon is an ongoing character. Uh, and clearly a character that's interactive, that's going to open up all sorts of story avenues that that don't exist in the book. And the vault in and of itself, I would argue, primarily for people who haven't read the books, but it's interesting. I I was talking to a bunch of people last night, in fact, um, about the season who have never read the books at all. Fascinated by the vault. They remain fast. They, had, they didn't know Harry Seldon was going to walk out of the vault. And, and so I, I and that's the vast majority of our audience. And so I'm trying to weigh both, you know, people like you or I or, be, you know, people that have read the books with the vast majority of our audience. They don't know what the vault is. They have no idea that Harry Seldon was going to walk out and, 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 and sort of the drama and the suspense of that and the mystery of that. that for them was a massive surprise. And I know it's hard for someone who's read the books to think about that or try to, you know, hold that kind of idea, you know, um, but, but that's a, that's a big deal to them. They were fascinated by it and they're fascinated to see what other mysteries the vault could contain. And so uh, the vault to me is interesting as a storytelling engine. That doesn't mean it can do everything. Um, and I would never have the vault be a time machine. Uh, or, or I do I think something like that would break the sort of central premise of 
foundation. Yeah, obviously, some people would disagree with me about some of the choices we made as to whether or not it breaks the central premise. But yeah, I would never have the vault be a time machine. I think that would just be a completely different story. I don't think the vault is a stargate or anything like that. But that doesn't mean. Um, I think there's some pretty interesting things to reveal about the vault in the future that I feel at least are, are fair game. People will decide for themselves in future seasons. Um, yeah, you you got me on the official podcast because I was we were like four or five episodes in, and you did that the Library of Babel reference, and it was so like. Yeah, you'd been doing that joke for like four weeks. Like, what's in the vault? Ah, it's some you know, ice cream shop. It's the Yeti. It's whatever. And and mm. that was just so earnest and like cool side. That I actually did an embarrassing amount of research and checked that book out of the library, uh, thinking that that was an actual real. Cl- that wasn't a real clue. That was just you still you know doing the bit, right? I'm not going to answer that one. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Um, but I would say part of the fun for me sometimes is is um, sometimes I think it is fun to hide something in a joke, uh, you know? Uh, a lot of people had a question. I mean, but, but, but surely, surely that's, I mean, I, for me at least, as a, as a like, you know, I'm, I probably watch many of the same kinds of shows that you watch. And, and I like it sometimes when showrunners are being a little playful or being a little fast and loose about what they're saying or not saying. I, I think that's fun. I, you guys are professional liars and I yeah. never forget that that doesn't stop. <laughs> once you yell, you know, like if, if it is in the service of entertaining the audience and that's your job. So, so there's a lot of questions about, you know, the vault, like uh, was the, what the one, of the big ones that people had is it was the null field, like a one-time thing. Or is it going to snap back into place now that Harry's gone back into the box? Or do you care to address that? It's going to snap back into place. Ah. Is it a problem that Salver's mother gave Salver the prime radiant? Um, or is that a one time needed to unlock the box? And um, or is that what, a piece- what do you mean? What do you, you mean? It will be a problem for the foundation that the prime radiant is not there. Is yeah, that what you I, mean? Because it seemed like they're the, the opening the prime radiant or doing the jest was key to opening the vault the first time. Like, I don't know what would have happened if that hadn't been there. Maybe that's just a, a wrong inference. Maybe that was just a happenstance and and Harry was just gestating in there and he popped out when he popped out. But well, like, here, that was here. Here's a thought experiment, right? Is right. Would Harry have come out of the vault? Well, obviously, Harry did come out of the vault if Gail wasn't there and he thought Gail was going to be there. Would right. Harry have come out of the vault if Salver hadn't done what she did? I would say yes. Okay. I don't know if that makes people's heads explode or not, but I would say yes. Because I, I like the idea of Harry popping out and everyone is just incapacitated because Gail's not there, Salver. So. But but yeah okay so so that- but I would I, I would also say with respect to the null field there's um, there's another reason for the null field's existence that we will get into in future seasons there's a there's a there there are other reasons for why it exists that I I think make perfect sense um, even if it incapacitates some of your followers. I think that's the thing. One of the things that I find interesting just about the way shows are being consumed right now is 
there's a strange tension between how much people, how many questions people expect to be answered or not, you know, at the end of the season and whether or not it's permissible to answer some, but not others, whether or not it's okay to leave some questions unanswered for future seasons or whether or not it's even okay to leave some questions unanswered forever. Uh, and I think it's interesting how some people are, um, it puzzles me I, because I felt that we answered the majority of the questions raised at the beginning of our season, by the end of our season, you could agree oh, or disagree, I, I agree. But, 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 mo- but most of them, people can debate whether or not those are satisfying answers, but you know, we, we didn't explain everything in part because we think it'll be more interesting to explain it in future seasons. Uh, and, and I think I've said this before, just because we didn't explain something doesn't mean we don't intend to explain it. There are dramatic, you make dramatic, dramatic decisions all the time as to whether or not I'm going to turn over this card or that card. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something I've noticed. That like uh, sometimes a fan base will, the way you mentioned the way they interact with the stuff and with the internet and the hive mind, it's like I've seen fans kind of ruin shows for themselves because they get so into like their pet theory that like when the show doesn't go down that branch, it's like, well, the show sucks because it didn't do what I thought it was supposed to do. And I thought it was supposed to do, and, and, and sometimes those, like, you know. Well, you, you guys think, were, you guys were surprised, it seems like, and that's okay. I mean, I. I, I am a human and I'm a fan, so, so I, I'm not accepting myself from this behavior, sure. But I think it's okay. I mean, I, I, look, I like your show and I like your analysis. And I, I, I would listen to your show if I weren't involved in my show, uh, because I think it's really interesting. And, I praise, thank you. Well, but I think it's a, a. And it seems like you guys like most of the stuff we did and there's some stuff you didn't like and fair enough, but then it's impossible to please everyone all of the time. Oh, and, 100%. And there are, there are choices we made. Some of them are for, and I have referenced this in the last interview, some of them are for economic reasons, choices that we had to make, or some of them are for actor availability or reasons why we could or couldn't do X, Y, or Z. Um, there are some choices we made because um, we have plans downstream that that would mess with. And, and so we're, we're deciding not to do that. And, and, and then sometimes there are just some choices we made because it's personal preference, um, whether or not. Uh, so, you know, I think that there are, and, and, and then every once in a while, fans, uh, whether it be Reddit or, or, you guys or, or your listeners will come up with a theory that's really interesting. Well, I thought, God, I wish we would have thought of that. But, but of course, we don't, I don't have a thousand writers iterating on things. So I've got six and five months. And sometimes you have to make a decision. And, you know, yeah, yeah there are a couple of times. Sometimes like, a million wow. monkeys. Sometimes a million yeah. monkeys come up with a good something good. But uh, of course, of course. Uh, a question about the universe. Um, you know, the, the, the empires got fantastic technological powers uh, and they've been in, in existence for, you know, 10 millennia plus. Mm-hmm. Do you perceive the empire at this state and its development to be relatively technologically stagnant or in yes. your, in your mind, are there like innovations happening or yeah. No, I think they're stagnant. I think they're contracting and I think there's even technology that's been lost. Ah. And 
And um, but the other thing that's happened is that it hasn't been one continuous state of development. There have been, I think I mentioned this to you guys, there have been a, a series of near extinction events that the human race has faced in our in our universe, in our mythology since leaving Earth. And so there have been already a couple of dark ages that nearly dragged everything, you know, back. But I I think they're absolutely stagnating. And I think they're there's brain drain and they're contract they're dying, the Empire. Do you um when we look at this, like next season, uh, as fans, should we like uh, prepare to like rejoin the plot as it, you know, like look with the, the Gale and Salver traveling roadshow kind of thing? Or is there room to kind of go back and tell some like um, stories about how maybe Salver got to a Synax or um, the, 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 what, what is our expect? Are we are we just like firmly going to be 138 years in the future starting in season two or? Of course, I guess, you know, we kind of gone back and forth in time, even this season. It's going to be a little bit of both. Um, um, again, I'm, I'm hesitant to reveal too much. I would say predominantly we, we, we won't be doing as much time jumping as we did in season one. That was partially necessitated by getting information out and aligning things. There, we will be jumping back prior to um, when season two begins. We will be jumping backwards a few times. And in at least one instance, we'll be jumping back prior to season one, which is fun. And we'll also be jumping forward <laughs> a little bit. Um, I, I, I think that's fun. I think that's interesting. And, and that's kind of the plan for the life of the show. Uh, but I will say moving forward, predominantly the intention is that, that each season will be existing, uh, and a kind of solid, the storylines will be existing in a solidified timeline, if that makes sense. Are you, so I, I know that, uh, one things you said in a previous interview that kind of like caught my imagination is that you, you wanted to have like primary antagonists, you know, like in the, the Cleonic dynasty throughout the life of the series. Is that still, are you, are you so are we to expect that there's going to be a Lee Pace character, uh, in like season seven and eight, uh, if in, in success or because like, cause like with, if, if that was the, the plan, like I'm frankly surprised at how corrupted the dynasty's already been at the end of season one. Oh like, yeah. I, like, yeah you're I'm like where can the story eight? go where season can eight the story is he gonna go? have like a hunch and three arms and like what kind of genetic drift are we going to be looking at here but like yeah is that still the plan or is there might be a little bit of drift in the antagonists um wow i i, I would love to tell you more but i really i really can't um uh well i don't want to push because um, i don't want to ruin it for myself so yeah yeah I, you know i I will say that um, there's definitely there, there's definitely some things that we're planning on doing in season two that I haven't really seen anyone surmising about online. Hmm. So that's kind of fun. Um, but I, I liked how we weren't writing ourselves into a corner because I knew where we were going for season two. But I, I, I liked how apocalyptic things got with the Empire um, at the end of, of season one. Um, and it does lead to some pretty interesting story conditions moving forward. Also, even into season three, I'm, I'm pretty excited also about where things will go for the empire in season three. 
So the Empire will be around at least through season three. I'll say that. All right. Uh, how has Brother Day's perception of himself and the Empire changed by Demerzel's apparent and continued defiance of him, kneeling, you know, uh, snapping the the neck of of Dawn? Um, any insights on like what that's done to his? Because like we 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 don't get it. We we see how what what the Demerzel's reaction to all this is. We don't really get to see the day the the the, the, the day's reaction. Are that. you talking about? what his reaction would be like post the events of episode 10 or, or post the events like of his arc was on a more empathetic bending unflexible yeah. arc. And is this going to be like a snap back to reality kind of thing? Or is there going to be more continued like uh, friction between day and, and dusk moving forward, I guess. Well, um, ha, what can I say? <laughs> Um, well, let's put it this way. Let's say that Day's genome had been altered or corrupted like Dawn's, right? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Demerzel would then, if that were the case, do the same thing to Day that she did to Dawn. Interesting. Interesting. I don't, I don't think that, uh, I mean, I think he would fall into the same category. One of their listeners, uh, Arcade Shenanigans, wondered about the disposition of the Raven. That's Harry's ship that was going to Helicon. Um, mm. It looked pretty grim for that ship as we last saw it. That there was, it was on fire. Uh, you know, Gale even said maybe something that this could survive. Uh, and do, do you think that the, the Raven is still going to be peace on the board going forward? Or is it, is it just I, I, I can, uh, I, can con- I can confirm... Um, that the Raven exploded. You see it in the reflection of the pod. I That's what they wish out, yeah. we had two other uh, VFX shots planned to objectively show the Raven exploding that we had to cut late in the post-production process because we didn't have enough money. And that was the compromise. Uh, I, I wish we could have shown it. Uh, the Raven blew up. Yes. And yes, it was, um, an impetuous act on, on, on Gail's part, but I, in defense of Gail, I would say, um, you know, from the time she was thrown into that cryopod by Raish to the time the Raven blew up, maybe 36 subjective hours passed for her. Uh, and I would, I, I guess I would say to the listeners and viewers, well, how would you have handled all of that information that everyone you ever known had died and that you'd been Shanghaied and that yeah, you'd been jerked around and railroaded. railroaded. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, really, would you have acted with complete equanimity? And and um, I'm not, I'm not sure many people would. Uh, Dan wrote in and said that uh, I'm consistently struck with how cohesive and comprehensive the world building is and foundation. I find that it's in keeping with the trend of world building that you see in a lot of other major franchises like Harry Potter, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Game of Thrones, etc. He says, can you comment on this change? Uh, would the creator of Superman have been expected to justify, for example, how Clark Kent uses heat vision through his glasses? How does this expectation, this, this <clears throat> obsession with the world building affect your job as a creator? Do you find it more fun, more challenging? Uh, I appreciate the world you've built, but at some point, can you just say it's fiction? Don't sweat it so much. <laughs> um, it's it, this 
it's one of the most enjoyable aspects of making the show for me. Um, I really enjoy it. It's also stressful, the amount of scrutiny um, that, that the world building falls under inevitably uh, as much as we try to do quality control or keep things consistent, it, it inevitably on a massive behemoth like this, there will be things that are inconsistent. There will be uh, design antecedents. You know, sometimes I've, I've seen someone pull a still from some other science fiction piece saying, oh, look, this looks like it was inspired by that. I wasn't aware of it, but it's obvious. It's possible that, you know, one of our concepts artists was. Um, I don't, I have a pretty good sense of, you know, science fiction out there, but it's not exhaustive. It's not encyclopedic. Um, it, I, I love it. I, I think the fidelity of the world building is, is, is one of the strengths of the show, and I love doing it. But yeah, are we, are we going to fall on our ass or our faces a few times here and there? Absolutely. Are we going to unintentionally swipe from something that existed prior? A- absolutely. I mean, that's just par for the course. It's so funny. I, you guys are um, uh, trashing on um, the Thespin, uh, the, 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 the ship control stuff. Yeah, the fair, fair, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah fair, fair enough. But it, but. But God, did non-book people or non non-people like you love that? It's just it's just so interesting. It's like that that was called out as being super cool by other people. So what do you do? I don't know. I know. I know. We're uh, mm-hmm. we're 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 goofy, and I, as I try to I try to yeah. I, it's it's always but wild. Way, fair it's enough, always, we're not it's always, no, no, no. I know, I know. But it's it's a wild experience to be like to get the three sixty feedback. <laughs> Um, By the way, I do th- I do the same thing when I'm watching stuff. I'm like, that's what it is to be a fan. Oh my god, they swiped out from that, or that would they would that really work? Or would they really do that? I mean, there are I mean, there are a bunch of movies that I love. There, I'm still you know, oh, that was lame, or you know, I wouldn't never done that. You know? Yeah, I, I think part of the real intense fan experience is the like know uh, something in, so intimate that you know all of it. It's like like for example, I love Star Wars, even though a stormtrooper smacks his head on a bulkhead of the star or the death star in the first one, you know, like there's a famous scene of one of them just like, like, yeah, I love that about it. Even though that's like probably Lucas wishes he'd caught that and not had it in there. So yeah, bring more knuckle busters next season. Why not? Um, so the Dan also had a, a postscript. It said certain parts of the final episode reminded me of old science fiction shows from like the seventies. Uh, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Sixties and seventies. Was there any inspiration or homage to old science fiction in that episode in particular or more so than others? Or maybe it was just a music. Uh, is there anything to Dan's perception here? Were you hearkening back to sci-fi of old or is it just a happy coincidence? I would say um, only because there probably is unconsciously uh, because as a um, I'm a huge fan of 60s uh, well, film and television. Uh, uh, and because that episode was directed by me, I, I mean, I, I infuse a lot of the show w- with my ethos, but because it was also directed by me, I'm sure unconsciously, you know, I love the prisoner. I love David lean. I, I love Walter Hill. I love John Houston, things like that. So I'm sure unconsciously, even more of that seeped in because I was, choosing specific lenses or specific compositions or things like that. But it's not like I said, 
oh my God, okay, I'm directing this one. So this one's really going to be an homage, but I'm sure unconsciously that was the case. For I love the way you shot that that garden scene where it was like a duel between like the really super intimate close ups and the really remote removes and I eh, man that, that was that was that was a great sequence. Uh, that I like, was, uh, I like some first class grim dark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that scene. Well, I tasked myself in that case with saying, "What what is the most unrelentingly dark fate I can possibly think of for Azura?" and 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 uh, that was pretty dark. I thought this was because, like, I thought there's because I, I you mentioned this in the in the podcast, the official podcast, that there's like a war between the viewers. You just showed this guy being the un, this unmitigated monster, and then the next scene you show him being a grieving father, essentially. And I love that sympathy. And I, I thought it was like because I kept on thinking about that as I was reading feedback because I found several people trying to say like, oh. They didn't really do that. That was just like he, they're trying to find a way to like, like he no, was just he messing did. with. No, I, I totally agree. But I think that was I, I saw that as a, a way for them to bridge that dissonance, like trying to find a rumor like, well, yeah, Day's a bad guy. Yeah, they're but trying to like justify. Yeah, he wouldn't do innocent people. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're trying to justify his actions. But I, one of the things that I say on the show a lot of times is that we have very few actual villains on the show. There's one coming in season two, somebody that I would consider a villain, but I don't consider empire a villain. Um, I consider them antagonists, but I don't consider them true villains because they're also, um, you know, they're prisoners. They're they've, you could look at them as victims of abuse psychologically uh i mean there are are there they're certainly victims literally and figuratively of their upbringing they're monstrous and they're entertaining but then you know so is tony soprano um i I think that's what makes for good show viewing yeah and to the extent they're monstrous it's by design like they didn't add like there was no free will in any of these like it's cleon started this ball in, in, in motion and i even think azura even said that she's like you know don't be too hard on him because yeah what, what what's uh, from his perspective this is this is uh this the worst thing to happen to him and he doesn't see that this is you know like the the, the misery that they visit collectively on the, the galaxy of course of course uh, but again i think that's inter- i think that dissonance is interesting um Christmas. Mr. Goyer, I we have thoroughly enjoyed covering the, your show. Uh we can't wait to come back uh for season two whenever that might be. Hopefully uh there won't be as many interruptions and uh, everything will go smooth and you guys so, will be back bigger and better. Thank you. All all things being equal. So was I uh a lost Lindelof or a leftovers Lindelof? Uh well, it's or weird because, like, so, yeah, that's the thing. It's like those are so extreme because, like, Lost Lindelof is a is a little bit of a trickster Loki god, uh, and then Leftovers was the extreme. Like, yeah, it's a mystery box, but I'm never opening it. <laughs> I, and he said that from the beginning. Like, I am not going to explain the disappearance. So it's like, I think you're. Uh, I, I mean, honestly, if if you do have like a nice architected like run of seven eight seasons, and you know where you're going to be at, like you are. I think miles ahead of where Lindelof was in the production of, uh, I'm just, Cruise I'm just kidding. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I would, I would be, I think Lindelof is a super talented guy. Of and, course. 
and he's already been responsible for, I think, three, you know, fascinating and interesting shows. And, um, and just like anyone, we all have our, our quibbles, but it's a, uh, I have a tremendous respect for Lindelof. Oh, me too. And, left, and left, I mean, I, I, I was a huge fan of the first few seasons of Lost. I probably would have stuck with it, except for I was traumatized by my experience with X-Files and how that ended up. <laughs> so I, I saw like, w- like once, once I saw that there was like some obvious, like just hot potatoes dropped, I'm like, okay. Uh, but you know, leftovers and Watchmen, my God. Uh, uh, we're, tr- we're, we're, we're trying, we're trying not to have any hot potatoes. And, and, and that's the last thing I would say is in terms of, uh, um, we we do think about broad strokes. Well, where is this heading? You know, I don't I don't think we've got anything quite as big as you know what's the deal with the island? You know, hanging out there that we haven't at least you know thought about. It. I'm taking nothing away from that. I mean, that show evolved in a crazy way. No one expected that show to take off that the way that you know oh, it sure. took off. Sure. But um, it was a different era too. You know that that yeah. kind of like serialized uh, ultra plot. That was you know that was definitely exceptional rather than the norm. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it would have been a different show if it had come out today. But you know, we're we're trying to think about the big, the big uh, you know land masses in, in the future and make sure we're, that we're writing towards something and we're not pulling the rug out from under people. We're trying our best, so we'll see. But but I enjoy your show. I enjoy the analysis. It's okay if you take pot shots at, at things here or there. It's all good. Uh, yeah, I hope we, I hope we're at least fair. And I, I we tried to. I think you're fair. We tried we tried to at least say it's like it's it, at the end of the day it's like hey man it's like just our opinion you know we 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 we're kind of the dude abiding. I, I think it's fair. I think it's fair. So. Well, again, thank you so much for your, being very generous with your time and uh, your feedback throughout the season. And uh, I, I hope we can talk uh, about the foundation in the future. Uh, I would love that. Thank you so much. Good luck in the season in in success. Yes. Yes. See ya.